open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We'll be in verses 11 through 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are on the right side. The New Testament, that's the beginning of the New Testament. Then you'll hit Acts and Romans if you keep flipping to the right. If you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, back to the left. Um, and the table of contents is in the front. Always, always very helpful. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And over the past couple of weeks, we've uh, focused on some key aspects of the nature of Christ. Of who we just looked at who he is from uh, the same two verses, actually, from Romans 10, 9 through 10. We considered his intimacy, that he is a God not who is far off, like we often think about, but a God who is close, that through Christ we sense a real cosmic intimacy, a real familiarity with Jesus because of the work of the cross. And not only that, but we considered his authenticity, that inwardly and outwardly Jesus' life is in perfect harmony, that the incarnation is a visible display, a visible incarnation of the invisible God. And today, we'll consider his faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness is that he's true to his promises. And that's a really good place to begin, to just even understand that in the midst of uncertainty, and I don't know about you, but a lot of chaos and like what in the world is going on. We have promises of God in the middle of the scriptures, in the middle of our lives that God says he will be true to. So the faithfulness of Christ is really all about that reality, that he does what he says, but also that he says what he will do. He does both of those things, which I think is quite beautiful. He doesn't just do what he says. He also makes it clear, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you can expect from me, and I will be faithful to that. The, the reason that's critical is because you can start building your life on it, right? If God just did what he did and it was really good, we had no way of preparing for it. But he's a God who says, here's what I'm going to do. Trust me. Wait on me. I'll be faithful to you. It has to be both, that he is a God who does what he says and he is a God who says what he does. In speaking promises, God does something in that he invites us to trust him. He invites us into relationship with him. This is what any promise does. Whether it's between friends or whether it's between a bride and a groom, when we make promises with one another, we're saying, here's something to trust on. Here's something to expect and build your life on. But in keeping his promises, then, God actually proves the goodness, the power, the fidelity and that, of that trusting relationship. And so today, the faithfulness of Christ, we'll consider, is simply that, that he is true to his promises. His faithfulness, though, is multifaceted. It's one of these words, again, that we like to throw around in evangelical or Christian circles that God is faithful. But what, what exactly are we saying when we say that God is faithful? Well, it has many different parts and aspects and nuances, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the faithfulness of Christ? I think a number of these things come into focus in our passage today. So if you would, let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In context, Paul is continuing a thought that he has been exploring for this whole chapter, which is really the nature of salvation. And really we're in a section, chapter 9 all the way through 11, where, where Paul is articulating salvation particularly for his Jewish readers. And so he's, he's honing in on that, he's zeroing in on that, if you will, that salvation is a work of Christ's intimacy, that he is a God who drew near to us. That it's a work of his authenticity, that he lived perfectly in our place and died 
for our sins. And we can tell, even with the grammar that Paul uses, and don't you love when we zoom in so close that we get to talk about grammar? Thanks be to God. What a gift. See, by giving us reasons over and over again, he gives us like this really great ground of salvific understanding. If you notice in verses 11 through 13, each new thought or each new verse begins with the same word, the word for, or in the original language in Greek, it's gar. And there's another one even thrown in the middle of verse 12 just to make it a full round number of four. And it's really like saying because. So if we sort of use that word to help us understand, it's like, it's like Paul is saying because everyone, uh, or because everyone will not be put to shame. Why? Because there is no distinction. Why? Because the Lord is Lord of all. Why? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you with me? He's continually giving us clarity about what he has just said by explaining or giving another layer down, if you will, of the logic or understanding of salvation. And each subsequent because or reason sort of gives us a deeper understanding of what one thing, the faithfulness of Christ. And so that's how we'll organize our time together today in these three movements that I'd like to explore. The first is that Christ is faithful to the end. Christ is faithful to the end. And then the second, that Christ is faithful to all people. And thirdly, perhaps most paradoxically, Christ is faithful to himself. Christ is faithful to the end. Christ is faithful to all people. And Christ is faithful to himself. And like always, if we're going to have any hope at understanding that, we need to ask for God's help. So let's pray. Father, it was good when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord today. We get to be with our people. We get to be with your people. I see my brothers and sisters, and we get to incarnate this sort of ancient and and brilliant and beautiful thing of being the body of Christ. When we gather, we are communicating something to each other and to the watching world of the truth and beauty of our Lord and Savior. So even now, we say, you are amazing. You are glorious, and you are worthy of our attention and worship. And so may even the fact that we've sung truths from your word that we have prayed in accordance with your word and now that we are are looking to the scriptures to try to understand first and foremost what you're like who you are so that we would know how to live in this world that you've made for us in this time that you've given to us in the particularities of our existence that never surprise you what great joy it is to remember this morning you are not surprised that you are not sweating, you are not worried, you are not anxious, you are sovereign, providential, and fully in control. I know I don't always feel that way. And so I need your word, I need to remember. My brothers and sisters, we need to remember that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are a sure foundation. So would you anchor us in that today? And would it be for our good? Let it be for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So Paul, I think, is essentially asking a question, and then he's going to answer it over and over again, right? Like a good preacher, he asks one simple question and then answers it for 45 minutes, right, with headings and subheadings and all of that. Um, and And I think it's a really personal question. He's essentially asking, how do we know that we're saved? How do we know that we're saved? A a brief aside to hopefully give us clarity about what we're talking about when we talk about salvation. In in the Christian imagination, the biblical understanding, salvation is much bigger than often I think it gets belittled to, which is just forgiveness from sins and eternal life with God. 
And I, I know it sounds weird to even say something little like that, because that's massive. But it's even better than that. It's even bigger and bolder than that, than just an individualistic kind of salvation. And often, in our very an individualistic and sort of me-centric culture, that feels like a lot. That feels wonderful, because I am my world, my world is me, and so if you save me, that's pretty good. But there's more than that. See, the story of Jesus is about an incoming kingdom, a kingdom that he has inaugurated, one then that we say is already, yet not yet fully realized. And what that means is that the rule and reign of God is already here, and yet it's coming more and more to this world. Cosmically, his world, his, his kingdom is coming. That, that means through the invisible spiritual realm, his kingdom is coming. But also ecclesiastically, that means through his church. There is something uniquely that happens within the people of God that we're supposed to be a living, breathing, visible example of the kingdom of God ruling and reigning on earth. Did you know you're a part of that? Just by gathering today at some level, you are participating in a story, in an announcement of the lordship of Jesus in all of the different spectrums that we may be a part of in our own spiritual journey. This is a way, even, even if you are skeptical of the faith, this curiosity is even hinting at this existence of something that is cosmic and ecclesiastic and real. Thirdly, not only cosmically and ecclesiastic, but personally. That's you and me. It comes in our hearts. So, so the kingdom of God is coming in our hearts. It's coming through the church, and it's coming cosmically over all things that Jesus says that he owns all of the universe. And so the coming kingdom, inaugurated by Jesus when he steps onto earth's dirt in the incarnation, and Jesus hasn't, is even currently bringing more and more of this salvation reality, not only cosmically, ecclesiastically, but also personally. Specifically, then, when we talk cosmically, that Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death, and therefore the power of heaven, they're moving here and now and among us, the principalities, the invisible realm, the thing that many of us modern people don't even believe is real. Jesus is like, I don't need you to believe it's real. I'm already ruling that mug. And he is over all of that and bringing his will to bear, even in places that we can't see. And this is meant to give the people of God assurance. Because if it's only what we can see, it's not looking that great. But the Lord is saying, there's a whole world and a whole realm that I'm in charge of that's moving in my kingdom will cosmically. Not only that, but Jesus didn't just rule over the invisible realm, but he's made for himself and is making for himself a people. He's called us to live holy and loving distinction in this present age. We're supposed to live a particular way that people see the kingdom of Jesus when they hear about church in the square. When they hear about your small group, they're supposed to go, that doesn't feel normal to me. Not because you're perfect, but rather because you're familiar with one who is, right? It's because there's all of these things about us that you just go, those people shouldn't like each other, and they keep hanging out, and they keep, like, being honest about their shortcomings. They must believe in something bigger than themselves. That's the living with distinction. Not that they've got it all together, but they seem like they know someone who does, and they trust him. And Jesus also liberates, forgives, and renews, and bestows his righteousness, as we've already considered, on people, on individual human hearts, by giving actually a new heart, and then filling those hearts with his spirit. So I hope that you're seeing how vast salvation is. When the scriptures speak about salvation, they're speaking about it cosmically, they're speaking about it ecclesiastically, that's among us, and also individually or personally. In saying all of this, we're essentially saying that God has made promises over us, He's made promises to us, and he's made promises to you and to me. Now, why is this so important? Well, because the scriptures tell us that Christ fulfills all of the promises of God, right? First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes 
in him. That's, that's Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's his faithfulness. God is true to his promises, cosmically, ecclesiastically, and also personally. And one of the challenges with biblical interpretation is, is knowing when is the gospel, when is a gospel promise cosmic, when is it ecclesiastic, and when is it personal? And, and this is why it's important. A lot of times if we only see salvation as personal, every promise we read about in the scriptures we think is for me. And so I read the Psalms and don't really like care about context or the fact that my name's not David or I'm not part of Israel, but I'm like, that's probably for me because that sounds nice, right? But we have to have an understanding and, and even a question. Is this promise, is he speaking cosmically and eternally? Is he speaking to the church? Is he speaking just to me? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? It's really important to know where this belongs so that I live in accordance with that promise that Jesus has fulfilled or is fulfilling. See, when is God speaking over creation? When is he speaking to the church? When is he speaking to you and me? And depending on our perspective and understanding of that, it changes our interpretation. And so when we come to Romans chapter 10, all of this digression, which is now over, needs to be anchored that Paul is actually speaking to us personally here. And, and we know this because of a couple of clues that he's left in chapter 10. He's talking about the human heart. Look at verse 1. So if you're still in verses 11 and 13, look back up to verse 1 where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's speaking to his fellow Jewish people, his kinsmen. He writes individ to individuals. He's writes to, he wants them to know and believe and trust in Jesus, to know the gospel. He wants them to be liberated. He wants them to be forgiven. He wants them to be renewed. He wants them in that shorthand way. He wants them to be saved. Paul even gives them the, this very personal invitation to confess your belief and to believe your confession that Jesus is Lord. That's verses 9 and 10. So he's even saying, this is what I want you to say. I want you to believe and trust in Jesus. This is how we know he's speaking personally. And here's when we get to this question. How do we know that we're saved personally? How do we have deep assurance personally that we're saved? Paul begins to answer that question, I believe, in verse 11. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, another brief aside, just because I think they're fun. The, the method here is just as important as the content of his answer. What, what does he do? When there's a question, what does Paul say? For the scripture says, how instructive is that? I can't tell you how many times when I read something on a Twitter feed or Instagram or whatever, and I go, what do I think about that? Right? What comes to mind for me about me and about what I want to value and protect and what I think is true and real? What does Paul do when a question comes in? For the scripture says. His method, he said he goes straight to the Bible. Jesus did this too. If you remember when Satan tempts him over and over again, what does he constantly say? The word of God says. This is what God's word says. This is what God's, over and over again, it's like this broken record in his consciousness that when you ask me a question, the first thing I think is, what's the Bible say? Can you imagine if we became Christians like that? If we became followers of Jesus? Not to be like really weird and just like only quote scripture at people. That, don't do that. Like, I mean, maybe footnote every now and then. But to, be, but to allow your mind to be so informed by the word of God that when I begin an answer, I am inclined to think, what does God's word have to say about this? Otherwise, we are like James where we get tossed to and fro by every change of wind and doctrine. Whatever feels right and good at the time. See, Paul's feet are anchored so firmly that when a question comes up, he goes to the scriptures. We, we could go on and on about that. He does this over and over again in Romans, where he constantly is going to the scriptures. That's his method. 
But the content is also really important. And it comes from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 28, verse 16. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, even, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And then he says what? Whoever believes will not be in haste. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament puts it in the language that Paul uses, whoever believes will not be put to shame. How do we know that we're saved? Well, because thousands of years ago, God said to Isaiah that he laid a sure and tested foundation in Zion, a sure foundation. And Isaiah is writing in a time when God's people in Israel are trying to make their way out of a jam. And the way that they try to make their way out of a jam is not by going to God's word and anchoring themselves in their relationship with him. They start making a covenant with other nations, namely Egypt. They were the power of the day. They had money. They had, they had cachet. They had, they had esteem. And instead of trusting God, they go to Egypt. They're trying to save themselves. They're trying to protect themselves from God's judgment by running for help to earthly powers of their day that promise protection. But as one theologian puts it, which I think is so instructive for us, is that Isaiah is telling his readers there is no possible refuge from the judgment of God except or other than the grace of God. This is what God's people are learning over and over again in the Old Testament. There's no protection from the judgment of God except the grace of God. And if you believe that, if you trust the Lord, if you build your life on the sure foundation of this grace, what does Paul tell us? What does Isaiah tell us? You will never be put to shame. You will never be put to shame. I isn't it true? When we think about trusting God, we're like, if this doesn't work out, people are going to think I'm nuts. In, in other words, we think I'm going to get put to shame. If I really trust and go out on a limb and I wait patiently on him, right? If I, if I wait to see how God is going to bring about his good and pleasing and perfect will, people around me are just going to think I'm crazy. But if I just lean into an idol of the day, no one will think I'm shameful. They'll just think I'm normal, right? And so this is actually speaking to our modern mindset that we think trusting God will lead to shame. And what Paul is saying through the words of Isaiah is that's the only place you'll never be put to shame. You will never be put to shame when you trust in the Lord. Now, he is not just speaking to us personally in the moment. I think much more he's speaking about a judgment to come where we will not be put to shame. See, you and I will face judgment, which is wildly uncomfortable to think about today. It's really controversial to think about that ever anyone would judge me, but that someone is waiting in this age to come that is going to look at my life and give an evaluation of things is wildly unpopular. But this is what the scriptures teach us. That after death in the age to come, when God's kingdom comes into its fullness, cosmically and ecclesiastically, then it's coming personally. When we will be judged by God. In our sin, we should be terrified of that day. That does not seem like a good thing for this whole Rolodex of my life, for the whole, like all the screen grabs from everything I ever did being brought before me and to see if I am found wanting to enter into the kingdom. That's terrifying. This is what the scriptures teach us. See, we will be judged by God. And in our sin, we should, we should believe and even understand logically that we will be put to shame. But through faith, what Paul is teaching us is that we can be assured that we will not be. You see, this cornerstone that Paul says, or that Paul speaks about from Isaiah, 
Peter and Paul both pick up on this, and they say, that's Jesus, by the way. Isaiah didn't know it, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking about the Messiah, speaking about Jesus, and now they interpret that and anchor us clearly in it, that Jesus is our sure foundation, that Jesus is the grace of God, that Jesus is our eternal uh, protection. And so Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, and our hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, we will not be put to shame at the coming judgment. Why? Because we've already been covered in love. Not not because I'm going to get it together by then, right? But because when Jesus looks at me in the age to come and says, why should we let you? And he goes, because I'm with him. Because I'm with Jesus. I, I don't have any rebuttal to my condemnation because of my righteousness and because of my sin. I have nothing to say. Elsewhere, the scriptures say every mouth will be shut. We got nothing to say. But if we're covered in love, then what is seen is not my sin, but what is seen is the love of a Savior. And only love, scriptures tell us, can drive out fear. Only love can drive out shame. Only love can drive out that oppressive feeling of what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, or in the future. Church, I think so many of us are ruled by fear right now. And over and over again in our minds, don't we do this, we replay over and over again the hypothetical disaster that's going to happen tomorrow if this doesn't happen, or if that doesn't happen, or if this person shows up, or if that doesn't take place. See, fear tells us that tomorrow is uncertain and even dangerous. In fact, I I think we are being fed every single day by social commentators and political actors right now that we're in a state of emergency. And if you're not terrified, you're not awake. This is the impression that I constantly feel like. Like, you should be so scared. (laughs) It usually has to do, you should be scared if our person doesn't take office. Or you should be scared if our idea doesn't pass in this particular court or in this particular vote. That is, if something does not change or is guarded or countered, we'll all be doomed. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like that all the time. Shame then ultimately becomes a tool. Fear becomes a tool to motivate us to do something, to change something, or to concede to another viewpoint. But the scripture tells us that our hope is well beyond winning arguments. Can you believe that? well beyond winning the next social or political power struggle. What Paul is telling us, what Isaiah has been announcing for generations, is that our hope is that we are deeply loved, that Christ is faithful, and that he has covered us in his affection and his grace. This is what we need to remind each other of. When we're riddled with that kind of fear, what I need to be reminded of in my anxiety, Jason, you are loved. The God who was faithful will be faithful. So how do I know? How do we know that we're saved? What Paul is telling us is because Christ is faithful and he will be faithful to the end. He has not saved you just to this point, right? My, my group and I, just this week, we're looking at Psalm 80. And, and the way that that psalmist was going over and over again, all of the things that God had done for the people of God was this deep and sure found. So remembering God was faithful then. He was faithful then. He was faithful then. Why do I think he won't be faithful now? Why do I believe he won't be faithful tomorrow? See, this is what the people of God do. When a brother or sister comes to me and says, I'm I'm really afraid that this is going to happen. I don't say, well, if we vote and we do this, and those things are important and responsible, but put them in their appropriate due subjugation to understanding that you have a surer foundation than whatever the next election cycle is going to bring. 
or whatever the next Twitter feed is going to tell me about reality. Jesus is faithful, and he'll be faithful to the end. See, knowing we have this sure foundation, then, we, uh, that we are loved, that Christ will be faithful to the end, we still might be wondering, on a very deeply personal level, how do we know we're safe? How do I know I'm included in that? And maybe we even look to our distinction or our differences or our shortcomings, and Paul addresses it on another level in verse, uh, verse 12. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. One of the lies spreading in ancient Rome in the first century, particularly within the family of Jews and Gentiles, but particularly with, with the Jews, was that there was ethnic distinction and cultural distinction, but also that there was righteous distinction, that there was religious distinction and spiritual distinction, right? That there, there were differences ethnically and culturally, but Paul says that when it comes to salvation and love and the faithfulness of Christ, what's he say? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There, there's that for again, that, that other reason. In other words, what, how do we know that we're saved? Because Christ is faithful to the end, because Christ is faithful to all people. We don't have to worry that that faithfulness to the end is only talking about some people. Are you with me? It's talking about all people. It's like Paul knew that would be an objection we would come up with right after he said something that wonderful. That Christ will be faithful to the end. And we'll go, even me? He's like, yes, even you. Even you. Here Paul is teaching us what he seems to be teaching us at every turn, I think, in Romans, is that Jesus is radically inclusive. Jesus is radically inclusive. And I think it made a lot of his ancient readers just as upset as some of us are by that word and that idea. That Jesus is radically inclusive. But Jesus, uh, rather, says over and over again, he's communicating this idea, despite our discomfort, despite his listeners' discomfort with it. John 3, 16, you know, that verse that shows up at every football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, somebody say whoever, Whoever, some more people say whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says whoever. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever, somebody say whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever, somebody help me, Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Whoever, whoever, whoever. If the foundation, the cornerstone of salvation is grace, then the possibility of salvation is open to all. And if that makes you uncomfortable, you're being religious. You're being entitled. You're being legalistic. And it's not a condemnation for you. It's an invitation that the Holy Spirit weed that, root that out of your soul. Whoever. Jesus is so radically inclusive. He is faithful to all people. In fact, in the very next verse in uh, Romans 10, Paul quotes the prophet Joel. So this isn't Paul's idea. It's not a new idea. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. What's he say? Everyone. Another way to think about this is that Jesus' ministry was directly opposed to religious exclusivity. That Jesus belonged only to the spiritual elites and the socially powerful. 
According to Yale professor and theologian Miroslav Volf, Jesus was constantly doing two things. He was renaming sin and remaking sinners. Renaming sin and remaking sinners. He was always, in other words, redrawing the lines of morality around the heart and away from the letter of the law. And redeeming people who were bound up in all kinds of legalism, who were bound up in all kinds of sinful behavior. This is the beauty of his story of what is popularly known as the prodigal son. Is there was a word in there for the religiously entitled and a word in there of grace for the one who was a wayward son who had done all kinds of lascivious living in the far off country. Volf says that the double strategy of renaming and remaking rooted in the commitment to both the outcast and the sinner, to the victim and the perpetrator, is the proper background against which an adequate notion of sin as exclusion can emerge. In other words, Christ is faithful to all people. To all people. So, how do we know that we're saved? Well, because God is true to his promises. He's faithful. And he said he'll be faithful to the end through Christ. And he said that he'll be faithful to all people through Christ. Yet here's what the gospel begins to do. It's something that we'd never see packaged in our day and age, in our modern world. See, as inclusive as Jesus is, he's also just as radically exclusive. What's that mean? Because that sounds impossible. Well, Every time Jesus speaks about whoever he also speaks about a singularity of the pathway of salvation. This is something that many of us need to understand. It's the word nuance. Have you heard of this? It's a wonderful concept. It's a wonderful concept that helps us to hold things in tension that when we first view them seem like they're contradictory. But what Jesus does in his personhood is he holds both this radically inclusive idea that whosoever would come, everyone, all peoples, all different backgrounds, walks of life, ethnicities, and cultures. But then he says, through me. Right? Let's make sure that we're clear about the nature of Jesus' inclusivity. T today, when we think about inclusion, we often think about moral freedom. In other words, we think about the absence of judgment that no one is bearing down their preconceived notion of righteousness on me or their preconceived notion of what I'm supposed to do with my life. But Jesus is not inclusive because humans can take any pathway that they choose to salvation and the good life or to enlightenment. That's not what he is. Jesus is inclusive because anyone, by grace through faith, can walk the singular pathway of salvation, namely Jesus Christ himself. I hope we're picking up on that nuance. So in John 3, 16, Jesus says, whoever believes in me. John 8, 12, whoever follows me. John 12, 46, whoever believes in me. So Jesus is saying, anyone of all different kinds of people can come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They come through me. So see, Jesus is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. He's the most inclusive and exclusive person in the history of the world. See, every religion claims exclusivity. That this, this is who you are. This is what you ought to be like. In fact, a lot of evangelical churches today, this is what we thrive on. Oh, you go to that church? That's dope. They're really cool. It's like this little, like, holy huddle of, like, a country club ethic, right? That you belong to that thing. You must be special. It's exclusive. It's like, really, are you checking, like, things at the door? Like, not just anybody can come? You know what Jesus would say? Get behind me, Satan. May, may that not be true of us, whether in something that we say or do or don't say and don't do. 
church is not like a country club. You pay your dues and therefore your sort of social capital increases. We, we come through these doors because we have no social capital. I have no spiritual capital. The only prerequisite that you need to come to Jesus is admit your need for him. We sing that all the time. So this is not the exclusivity that we're talking about. What we're talking about, not that kind of religious exclusivity. We're talking about an exclusivity that Jesus alone knows the truth. That Jesus alone has done the work. That Jesus alone has the power to extend grace and forgiveness. Any other way is going to lead to some shortcoming or to some brokenness or to greater pain. And he is saying, come to me all who are laden. Why? Because I can give you rest. Nobody else can. I've, I've got what you're looking for. Wolf explains how Jesus combated this regularly. And uh, Pastor Tim Keller talks about how all religions truly are exclusive, but that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity. There, there's this duality about it. See, even, even something that we might not think, we're always dabbling in these things, even something that we might not think is really exclusive or really fundamental or really a universal truth really is. We can't help it. We always are dabbling in both. What do I mean by this? Even the religion of the day, which is really moral freedom, that, that you will constantly grow in popularity in most subsections of our culture in this city and in this particular neighborhood, the more moral freedom that we speak about and we, we see this even in the wake of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. One commentator explained that no one can tell them what to do, that this was the ethic, that ultimately the ground beneath them is that no one can tell me what to do. And th the problem with that, while there may be merit in that understanding of autonomy and of personhood, that statement in and of itself is telling someone what to do. And th that, that's the duality that is always at work. It's a, it's a hypocritical moment. Where, where in Jesus, he is constantly saying, I'm holding both. Anyone can come through me. It's not an ignorance of one for the other. It's holding both intention. Herein lies Paul's third answer to the question, how do we know that we're saved? Because Christ is faithful to himself. He's faithful to himself. This may seem kind of odd, but it's the most glorious truth we could possibly fathom. Christ is faithful to himself in a paradoxical way he is inclusive only because he is exclusive look at verse 12 and 13 again for the same lord is lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved there's no distinction because the same lord is lord of all and everyone who calls on the name of the lord that name that name that is above every name paul is saying is saved Saving all or everyone, that's inclusivity, who call on him or the name of the Lord. There's the exclusivity. See, the way in which diverse people are saved is because they are all saved by the same means, on the same path, by the same grace, by the same righteousness, by the same generosity, by the same love, by the same gospel, Jesus Christ himself. This is why it's really hard for Christians to live in any culture, in any time, in any place, is we're always holding both of those things. We're always holding love and truth, grace and the word of God. We never choose one over the other. That's what's really hard. I, I know, it's really hard to sit at that family table, isn't it? And be gracious and honest. To love people and to be unfettered by every which way the wind and course of doctrine goes. That's a really hard meal. <laughs> That's really, those are hard relationships. And sometimes, can I, 
I'm going to tell you something I need you to remind me. It's also okay to be quiet. I'm a preacher. Like, I think nothing cannot be solved without preaching at it, right? So it's also okay to just be contemplative and to think. Because it's usually in those moments, if I, when I'm slow to speak and slow to become angry and quick to listen, all of a sudden I see Jesus begin to put together beauty and truth. I go, oh, there it is. Where I just wanted to pick one or the other because I wanted to win. I didn't want to show love. I wanted to win. That, that's different. God, help us. Christ is faithful to his lordship. The same Lord is Lord of all. Christ is faithful to his name. That is his promises, his glory, and his character. He never denies himself. Paul touched on this earlier in Romans 3. What if, he says, some were unfaithful? Does the faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Again, Paul has judgment in mind in the coming age. And the reason that we can have certainty that we will prevail there in, in Romans 3 and not be put to shame in Romans 10 is that Christ is faithful to himself. He's faithful to what he has said. He is faithful to what he has planned. He is faithful to what he has willed. What he has established in is a sure foundation. If God said it, he'll perform it. This is, this is what we see over and over again. He is the cornerstone that Isaiah spoke about. He's the rock. He is the one who bestows upon us the riches of salvation from sin and freedom from an eternal life and contentment and joy. Christ is faithful to himself. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. This is what I'm longing for in this ever-shifting sand that you and I call America, that we call Chicago, that we call Logan Square, the northwest side of the city, is a sure foundation. I want something that tomorrow won't feel totally different. I want something tomorrow that I know I can anchor my life on and build my life on. And the only thing that I have found and the only thing that the scriptures point us to is Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected, ruling, and reigning Lord of the universe. He is Lord cosmically, he is Lord ecclesiastically, and he is your Lord personally. He's faithful to the end. He's faithful to all. He's faithful in all of that because he's faithful to himself. This means ultimately that our faith is meant to be grounded in the faithfulness of God. How do we know that we're saved? Because he's faithful to the end. He's faithful to all people. He's faithful to himself. And so we can trust him. Church, I am convinced that whatever you're facing, the thing that the Lord is teaching you is to trust him more. If nothing else, there may be other things. It's always at least that lesson. Can I get an amen? It's always at least that. Whether it's the rent or a relationship or a new job or even just feelings that aren't showing up that you normally have when you wake up in the morning. He's inviting you to trust him. Why? Because that's the sure foundation. Not your feelings, not your rent, not your job, not a relationship, right? The sure foundation is him. This is why he's always doing it, because it's for your good. It's for my good. He's always at least teaching you that. So God, help us to hear that. And if you will, Indulge me just for a moment. What I think that the church, what we as a church family need to really get good at is keep telling stories of God's faithfulness. Never stop because it's in recalling what he has done that helps give us clarity about what he will do. See, when somebody comes up here and tells me their story about God's faithfulness or when I'm in group and I hear it, that gives me hope for another day. Like, Christ has been faithful to them. He will be faithful to us. He will be faithful to me. And so let's just look really quickly 
at the discography, if you will, of the faithfulness of God in Christ, that Christ is true to his promises. In eternity past, Christ was faithful. In the incarnation, Christ was faithful. In his childhood, as a 12-year-old, Christ was faithful. In his community, to his parents, Christ was faithful. In his miracles, Christ was faithful. In his teaching, Christ was faithful. In his death, Christ was faithful. In his burial, Christ was faithful. In his resurrection, ascension, Christ was faithful. In his ruling and reigning before you were born and long after you go, he is faithful. In his return, he will be faithful. At the judgment, he will be faithful. In all time, I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing down, Christ is going to be faithful. So my sisters and my brothers, anchor your life on the faithfulness of God. Anchor your life on the reality that when all others are liars, God will not deny himself. He will be faithful. That does not mean tomorrow will feel better. It means that tomorrow you'll actually walk in the light. It doesn't mean that tomorrow everything will get figured out. It means that tomorrow you'll be dealing in reality and anchoring your life in a place where it's secure. Will he not be faithful to you, my sisters, my brothers, as you wait for work? as you wait for children, as you wait for marriage, as you battle with depression, have hard days, as you interact with your relatives, as you seek to love your neighbor as yourself, will Christ not be faithful to you? As you raise your children, as you're challenged by your work, as you're bored in your job, will Christ not be faithful to you? You see, what the faithfulness of Christ does every day is it speaks truth back to lies that Christ will not be faithful to you, that Christ is not faithful to all people, that Christ will deny himself. And what the scriptures remind us and what the community of saints is meant to do is over and over again to say, remember, Christ is faithful. And the truth, which speaks back to these lies, is meant to make us people who have a sure foundation in the middle of chaos, in the middle of great suffering and pain, that he is faithful to the end, he's faithful to all, because he's faithful to himself. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, as good as this is to remember, I just know tomorrow I'm going to need to be reminded again. And so I thank you so much for your word that puts this on repeat, that Christ is faithful. I thank you for my sisters and brothers who are in my life and I in theirs that we can remind each other all the time. And so when we get that call this week that marriage is really hard, that we're in the middle of conflict and sin, would we remind each other Christ is faithful? He's going to be faithful to you. Brother, he's going to be faithful to you, sister. When our boss mistreats us, we feel belittled and forgotten and overseen. Would we remind each other that Christ is faithful? When we feel the fear of judgment, when every cable news outlet and every Twitter feed we look at tells us there's a state of emergency, would we remind each other through your word that Christ is faithful, not because we are overlooking the pain and suffering of this world, but because we are only effective in it when we are anchored somewhere else. Help us in this, God that of all the things that would ever be said of us as a church family, we could say, man, they worked to trust in Jesus more every day. They worked to remember and to be anchored in the faithfulness of Christ every day. 
would that be true, not so that our name would be remembered, but so that the name of Jesus, which is a name above every name, at that name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that name would be favored. We pray that for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.